Glad you guys joined us on our final Sunday here at Christ Church slash the River Center. Uh, and uh, yeah, we're really glad and excited about the future. Um, but tonight, guys, uh, we are going to be in the Bible, as always. So if you do have one, please open it up to Isaiah chapter 40. You'll see uh, kind of where we're going to be on the screen. I have the second passage listed there, 1 Peter 1. Uh, because we're going to be flipping to that, and it'd be really helpful if you kind of put a bookmark there or a finger or something like that. And then if you're using one of the Bibles under your seats, uh, you can see the page numbers for those as well, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible a little bit. So, but we're in Isaiah chapter 40 uh, this evening. Um, so this week, uh, our kids started school. They're back at school. Some of you went back to school this week. Uh, so for us in our family, that means that summer has officially ended. Uh, this week, I'm not going to lie, it was both simultaneously exciting and simultaneously very sad uh, for our family because uh, it's this time every single year that I, I'm faced with the reality that our kids are growing up, okay? Uh, so this year, as we took our kids to school, uh, I have a third grader, okay? So some of you are like, no idea what that must feel like, but it's crazy. If you remember what elementary school is like, if your elementary school is like mine or my son's, they have like the kids split up in two sides of the school. You have the K through two, and then you have the big kid side, right? Third through fifth. So this is the year we brought a kid to the big kid side. And so, and even the, the last couple of days of school have been really sad because he doesn't even want me to walk him to his classroom anymore. He used to be that kid that wanted to kiss me on the lips, you know? And I was like, when is that day gonna stop? This, this week, right? <laughs> this week is when it stopped. Um, or my daughter, I mean, my daughter's in first grade, man. This is like so sad. I remember leaving that, that school, that first day drop off, and I'm excited for them because they're so excited, but I'm just like trying to hold it together. You know, like my little babies, you know, they're growing up. And uh, so it's, it's a really exciting yet a very sad, uh, sad week. And these are the weeks where I look at them and I just wish I could freeze time. I just look at them and I'm like, man, I wish I could just freeze time. I wish that. And so, and, and I will often hold my kids and I do that really cheesy dad thing that I never thought I would do, but I totally do it. And I, and I hold them and I say, you better promise me that you're going to stop growing up. You know, and they're like, dad, I can't stop growing, you know, and they're trying to explain to me the laws of biology and stuff like that. And I'm like, no, you need to promise me that you're going to stop growing up. And they'll say, oh, okay, you know, whatever. And I do this cheesy, like, dad thing with them all the time, okay? Maybe that you think that's ridiculous, and maybe someday you're going to say it too, okay? Um, but that's just how I feel. I wish I could freeze time. I wish that whatever we are going through right now, this season of our family's life, I wish it could somehow, in, the, in some ways, like, last forever. I wish this moment in life would endure. That's what I really wish. And, and so maybe you didn't drop your kids off at school this week, or you didn't tell them cheesy dad things, okay? But maybe you do. You experience this in different ways. Maybe you went on a vacation this summer, and there was like moments where you're like, man, I wish I could just press pause on this vacation. Or you had this incredible evening with some friends or with some family, and you're like, man, I wish I could just freeze this moment, this incredible evening. I wish I could freeze it in time. I, I don't know what it is for you, but it's safe to say, I think, that we all have this sort of insatiable desire for certain things in our lives to endure and to last forever. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
And in a season of transition, in a season of transition, whether that's a transition from summer to fall, or from a church in this location to a church downtown, or whether that's a, a gathering at 5 p.m. Or, or 10 a.m., right? Or if it's a summer like we've had as a church family, if you've been a part of us for any length of time, you know, it was a, it was a sad and joyful summer. We, we sent out some of our best people, you know? And so transitions can be very difficult. I don't know about you. Maybe it's a personal life sort of thing for you right now. Maybe it's a personal life change. It's a personal life transition that you might be going through. We so often see that so many good things in our lives, they don't endure and they don't last a lifetime. They don't last for generations or for all eternity. And so it's, it's difficult for us to face that reality at times. But there is at least one thing that God promises to us that will always endure, okay? And we find it tonight in our scripture. It's, it's his word. It's God's word. It's God's word. And I don't, I don't know what that, what, did, what that just did to you right now. If I said that and you're like, okay, here we go. Yeah, the Bible endures. I get it, right? But my goal, my prayer, honestly, this whole week as I've been praying for this moment is that somehow tonight we would leave being like, yes, I want that. I have that. That is like water to my soul. God's word endures. So in our passage tonight, we see the perspective that we all need. We see the promise that we receive. And we also see what this practically means. That nearly rhymes, okay? Kind of proud of myself, okay? The perspective we need, the promise we receive, and what this practically means. So really, we're talking about perspective, promise, and uh, practice, okay? So first, the perspective we need. Look in verse 6 with me of chapter 40 of Isaiah. It says, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? This is what you should cry. All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. I know it's hard to launch into a book like this because the book of Isaiah is honestly probably the most epic book in the entire Bible. You could swim in it your entire life. Uh, most scholars do and are always learning things. It's an incredible book. And it, it's a book about God and his people. And what's happening right now in this story is that God's people have decided they knew better than God did. And they've, they've sought other gods. They've, they've rejected God, Yahweh, his rule in their life. They've rejected his ways. And so what God has done in this book of Isaiah, what's happening here in history of God's people of Israel, is that he has used, God, he has used nations like Assyria and Babylon. And he's brought them in to purify, if you will, uh, his people. And his goal is to leave a remnant, to kind of have the faithful few who actually are devoted to God and worship him remain. That's what God is, is doing here. And so when we land in Isaiah chapter 40, what's just happened? Assyria's already come through and now Babylon has come through. And so God's people are in exile, meaning they are strangers in a new land. They don't, they don't live in their own land now. They are foreigners living in a new land, right? Right? They, they have these 
foreign ways that they're experiencing that are not normally their ways of life. They've lost a lot of their stuff. But you see here in chapter 40, it starts, God is wanting to speak words of comfort to his people. He's wanting to speak words of comfort to his people that are in exile, going through this really difficult transition in life where they are a new people in a new land and they're being pushed to the margins of their society. You see this in verse 1 of chapter 40. What does it say? It says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. So God's still claiming them, okay? But, but, but when we read verses 6 and 7, which I already just read, if you're paying attention, those words that I just read, they don't really sound like comfort, do they? They don't sound like comfort, at least on the surface. It kind of sounds really depressing, right? So, so how is this comforting? Verses 6 and 7, how is this comforting that people are grass and they wither and fade and God blows on them? I mean, that just sounds really sad, right? How is this comforting? How is this actually good news? Well, the good news of comfort for God's people that, that he's supposed to be crying out. So he says, cry out. And he says, what should I cry? This good news of crying, this comfort is that like the bloom of a flower, all people, all flesh are grass. This means that all people who oppose God will fade and wither away just like the grass fades. We see this understanding that this people referred to as grass, it's referring to people who oppose God. We see that because this, this metaphor of grass comes up all the time in the book of Isaiah. And it's always referring to people who are opposing God. I mean, just look over just to the next page, verse 24 of chapter 40. It talks about this. It says, scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, referring to God, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. Okay, so we see this imagery of grass throughout Isaiah, which should sort of tip us off in, in better understanding it. We see more of this imagery that this fading grass is not only people, but is referring to people who oppose God because in Isaiah chapter 28, verses one through four, if you wanna write that one down, Isaiah 28, one through four, you see the prophet Isaiah, he describes the withering of the flowering beauty of a nation named Ephraim, which was destroyed because of its pride. Okay, you see in Isaiah 51, verse 12, you see this picture again that, that talks about the enemy that opposes God as weak like grass that withers. See, in all of these examples of imagery of this withering uh, grass in Isaiah, they are all depicting people that are under the judgment of a very powerful God and they are compared to withering flowers. Okay, why is this imagery here? Okay. It's, it's to comfort God's people do you see it? Okay, it's to show them that there is no need for God's people to fear any enemy. There's no need for God's people to fear any enemy. He's basically saying through this imagery that whatever you fear, people, it will ultimately fade away. Whatever you fear, it will pass. Whatever you fear, it will not remain. It won't. That's pretty comforting, right? This is the perspective that we need, 
right? That, that, that the people that we fear in our lives, whether that is our greatest national enemy, if that in your mind is like North Korea, okay? Or if it's a, a personal enemy, like someone who is persecuting you in your workplace, right? Or if it's someone who you just can't simply, you just care way too much about what they think about you. Maybe it's that person, or, or maybe it's a group of people at school, or it's your colleagues or something at work. Those, those people's lives and influence and the fear or control they bring over your life and emotions, that will fade, that will pass. That is not ultimate. That is comforting. I mean, do you ever remember uh, when you were like a small child, and you like wake up in the middle of the night, and it's dark, and you kind of hear like the floorboards of your house creaking or something? And you're like, oh my gosh, someone is in my house. Like somebody broke into my house, right? You, maybe I was the only one somehow, right? Yeah, yeah, remember that? It was terrifying, okay? Or you like look over and it's dark, but kind of like light in your room enough to where you could go, what is that on that chair? I don't remember putting anything on that chair. Like, what is that? Is that like a monster or something? And what do you do? You cry out for your mom or your dad to come running in to the room, correct? Or maybe if you're really gutsy, you do what I did and you would line up at the door like it's a starting line or something and then you like build up the courage and you just like sprint to your parents' room or something like that, right? Like, like we, in the dark, like it, the darkness brings sort of like these tricky feelings and thoughts and we, we kind of get disoriented in the darkness. But what, what does your parent do? Like what, what should they do? They, they bring you back into your room and they, they flip on the switch and they go, oh, that, that thing you thought was a monster, it was just a, a pile of clothes, you know, or you learn, because you didn't know this as a kid, that, you know, when temperature changes in your house, the floorboards kind of like contract and, and retract and do things like that, right? They move, you know, I don't know, someone knows stuff about Matt Munger, you probably know stuff about floorboards, you know, I don't know anything about floorboards. Um, but you know that like, oh, okay, stuff happens when temperature changes, okay? Right? Like in the same way, this passage is intended to turn the lights on for us, it's to turn the lights on for us, for people who care way too, mu- too much about what other people think about us, or for us who, who fear what other people will do to us, so that we will see with our eyes and that we will realize in our hearts that, oh yeah, that's just a pile of clothes. It's meant to give us perspective on life, this passage is. So this perspective, though, it gains more traction as we receive this promise that's in verse 8. Look at verse 8. We see this promise of endurance. It says, the grass withers, the flower fades. We've already established what that means. But what? The word of our God will stand forever. The contrast here is very, very, very clear. What happens? Flowers fade, flowers fall, God's word stands. It remains. Flowers fall, God's word stands. What God promises will happen. We shouldn't trust in other people or, or put our hope completely in them for God's word is our only solid and sure source of strength in life. What is this word? What is this word? Is it the entire Bible? I think the basic answer to that is probably yes, but we learn something really cool in a passage like this, okay? And this happens a lot in the Bible. The Bible quotes itself, okay? And whenever the Bible quotes itself, our ears, our antennas, if you have antennas, right, those things should go up because you're like, oh, this is actually going to help inform how I understand this passage. That's why I wanted you to hold your finger on 1 Peter because Peter does this. So flip over to 1 Peter chapter 23. 
Hey, turn over with me to 1 Peter, sorry, not chapter 23, chapter 1, verse 23. You're going to be lost forever if you look for chapter 23. Uh, Again, that's on page 656 in your Bible and your seat. This is what it says, starting in, in verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Sounds familiar, right? Like we just we just read that, didn't we? Right? It's the exact same thing, except it more clearly defines what the word is. What is the word? This word, he says, is the good news that was preached to you. It's the good news about Jesus, right? That Jesus actually humbled himself and became a man and lived perfectly. He never did anything that was contrary to the will of God, right? But then he went and he died on a cross for people who would turn from their sin and trust him to be their savior, right? But then he defeated sin and death. He rose from the dead. This is the message. This is the good news that he says you believe. This is what he's referring to when he talks to this word of God. It's the gospel. Gospel. Do you realize that gospel is not a word that Christians made up? It was actually a military term for this day and age. And what would happen is you would go into battle against another nation or something. And back then they didn't have social media and the World Wide Web and stuff. And so when people were off to war, you're like, what's happening? Like, are we winning? Are we losing or whatever? And so they would send back like a herald. And that herald would come into the city and they would herald a gospel, this good news. They would say, hey, the king has won. We've won. There is victory that's been had. And the whole village would probably go, yay, you know, gospel, this is great. Right? This is the same term. It's a military term. It's victory in war. And so the, the good news then for us in Jesus is a message, not what you must do now to be saved. It's a message of what Jesus has already done for you. It's not what you to do now. It's what you, God has done for you in Jesus. And so here in, in, in the letter here of Peter, he's writing to these people who are scattered all over what is now modern-day Turkey, and they're being rejected. They're being pushed to the margins of their society. They're exiled, if you will. They are foreigners living in a foreign land because they've turned and trusted in Jesus as their Savior, and they're being persecuted for that. Isn't that interesting? That Isaiah writes to people who are exiled trying to learn what it's like to to live as God's people in a land that's not really conducive for that. And Peter picks that up and he says, yeah, same thing for you guys here. You're scattered about trying to learn what it looks like to follow Jesus in a world that's going to be very counterculture to the ways of Jesus. And so these very people, they're being rejected because they have and are believing in this good news. And so here in 1 Peter, he is contrasting the weakness and the pitifulness of people in the world with the power that these Jesus followers have with the strength and power that comes and remains in this word of God. The same word that has woken these people up originally and has given them new life. He's saying, cling to that same word and you will endure as well. See, God's word of hope and comfort, what does it do? It imparts life to weak and fearful people. That's what God's word does. God's word is reliable. It is imperishable. 
Did you see that in verse 23? In verse 23, it talks about, it says, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. Right? Well, what's the seed? He tells you it's the word. Right? And what's the word? It's the good news. Right? We, guys, we hardly have a category for what this passage is telling us about the word of God. It says it's imperishable. It remains. Isaiah said it endures. I mean, think about it. Things in our lives are just not very um, imperishable, are they? They, they are more likely uh, very perishable, okay? Uh, my wife and I, we have an ongoing, uh, you can call it a discussion, right, in our house about uh, the food expiration dates uh, on stuff you put in your fridge or whatever, okay? Um, I'm in the camp that when it gets to that date, I'm like on the fence if I'm gonna eat it on that date. If it's past that date, I don't care what it looks like, smells like, tastes like, I just am not eating it, okay? Right, she's a completely different camp, okay? And she's like, if it smells fine, eat it, you know? And I'm like, this is not worth it to me, right? Like, why would I, why would I eat that, okay? She's way more generous with the kinds of food that, that she will, you know, eat past the expiration date, okay? I'm pretty passionate about this, okay? So, I mean, just think about it. I mean, if, but, but she's, she's, she's generous, but there's still a limit to even her life because, I mean, if you found food uh, that your great-grandmother picked up at the market back in 1890 or something, and you're like, hey, my grandma picked this up back in the day. Like, you would say, she would say, I'm not going to eat that, correct? Right? Like, that's just, that sounds ridiculous to eat food from 1890. Why? Food is perishable, right? No one's eating food from the 1800s. It just doesn't last, does it? Right? Food doesn't last that long, let alone anything. I mean, if you owned a chair and you were like, this chair is a hundred years old, we would all like be in awe, right? You'd be like, dude, that is awesome. I mean, that is like really baller of you or something. Is that what the kids say, right? That's so cool of you. You have a hundred year old chair, like, man, you are awesome. Like you are, you're a cool person, right? I know there's 100-year-old chairs out there, but you know what I mean? Like, stuff just doesn't last. Everything is perishable. Everything fades. We, like, hardly even have a category for something that lasts and endures and doesn't perish. We, like, really don't. And because of that, we buy into that understanding of how the world works, that everything perishes. And so I think we take that idea that everything perishes, everything fades, and we kind of, like, massage that into the Bible a little bit. Okay, and so this is, this is partly how we have people today that view the Bible as this sort of changing word, or, or it's simply a cultural word, or it's, it's something that changes and gets reinterpreted over time, that somehow we, we look at it, and then we look at other people who are bothered by it in our culture, and we sort of apologize for it. We're like, yeah, I'm really sorry. Yeah, I don't know why God would do that, Right? You know, like, that, that seems really weird. Yeah, those people, they were just really barbaric or something. You know, and we, so we begin to apologize for the Bible or something. Or we're reading it ourselves and we kind of, like, roll our eyes. Like, wow, Bible, you're so traditional. You know, like, you're so, like, holding on to the good old days. What's wrong with you, Bible, you know? I mean, if everything around us changes and dies and has its sort of glory in the sun, then you will find people who talk about the Bible like it's just another one of those things. And that can begin to influence you. 
to view the Bible in a very similar way. You'll, you'll have people talk to you about it this way. But our promise tonight is that God's word doesn't need to be defended, okay? It doesn't have trends. The Bible doesn't have its moment in the sun. It doesn't tire, it doesn't weaken, it doesn't become invalid. It endures, it outlasts, it's imperishable. It, it was around way before you and I were, and it will be around well after our lives. There will be cultural narratives and there will be different influences and things that seem to throw the Bible into the dust, but God's word will prove itself to be the truer narrative that outlasts any other idea or person that tries to control or lead in this world in ways that are contrary to God. This makes me um, think, what I'm talking about, this makes me think of, of this uh, game within the, the game, okay? You know when you're like a sporting event and you're watching like a, a baseball game or something and they always do things during the timeouts or like when players are warming up for the next inning and they like have people go out on the field and they like do these little games, right? You know what I'm talking about? Okay. So you've probably heard of this guy, but the Atlanta Braves this year have this awesome in-game game where they have somebody who tries to race this guy named The Freeze. Okay, he tries to race this guy named The Freeze and um, you, you, I'll th you can thank me later, okay? But I brought you a clip, okay? This literally is, I think, the coolest thing ever, okay? So you're gonna see a clip here of a guy trying to beat the freeze. So this person always gets a head start. The freeze finally takes off, and you watch the rest. This guy thinks he's so cool. Look at him. He had like a three-quarter, like a half head start or something. Watch this guy. Oh yeah, dude, live it up. Nope, <laughs> boom. Yeah, isn't that sad? So sad. If you've never subscribed to MLB TV, you should totally do that apparently, okay? It's really great. All right, so there's this, there's this guy, everyone who races him gets this enormous head start. And if you've watched, they have a bunch of these on there. And every time you watch it, you're like, I don't know, that's a pretty big head start. They're probably gonna win. And this guy, you know, he shows you that he thinks he's gonna win. He's trying to rally the crowd into this moment. Like, I just, I just beat the freeze, but what happens? Man, the freeze pretty much always wins. He's just way faster. It doesn't matter what it looks like at the beginning. The freeze will end up crossing the finish line first. He always endures. He always outlasts everybody else no matter what perspective you have at first. I think the word of God is like that. All other so-called truths in our world might look the, like they are winning. They might be getting the crowd into it, right? These different worldviews and ideas and so-called truths, just like this guy who thinks he's gonna beat the freeze, but what happens? God, God's truth, it will endure. The Bible wins, the good news stands, the gospel story crosses the finish line first every single time. I mean, this guy literally falls, okay? And our scripture says people fall, okay? But the word stands. I mean, you might be in a place in life where you feel the need to defend the Bible. You might be in a place where you feel the need to apologize for the Bible. The Bible really doesn't need to be defended or apologized for. I mean, don't get me wrong, okay? We need to think rightly about it and bring understanding uh, in each other's lives when there's misunderstanding. 
But, but the Bible isn't going to be propped up or it's not going to be torn down based upon your effective defense of it or not. Why? Because the Bible is not simply a word of literature that you and I critique. It's a word that brings us to God himself. Check out this passage. It'll be on the screen. Hebrews chapter 1. It says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, the prophets, like Isaiah. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Which if you don't know who God, who's God's son is, it's Jesus. Okay? whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Meaning, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, right, when he dies on this cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is on his throne today. He is Lord. He is king over everything. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Guys, Jesus is the final word of God. He remains he has died, but he defeated death, and he will never die again. He endures. He remains. He is imperishable. He has the power. You can't destroy Jesus? Well, then you can't destroy the greatest and lasting word that God has ever spoken to you then. Do you see that? Well, what does this practically mean? What does this practically mean? I, I want to give uh, three practical applications, if you will, for this, for why this matters for you and how it affects our lives right here in 2017. So if you have this perspective on life, if you can gain the sort of perspective that we're talking about, and if you receive this promise and you treasure it, like, like how do we practice like these sorts of things? Like what do we even do? Uh, real quick, number one, this means then that we shouldn't fear people. This means that we should not fear anybody, no people. There are going to be cultural narratives that are contrary to God's story and contrary to God's mission that is unfolding in this world. And I'm just here to tell you, those counter narratives, they will not last. They might feel like they're winning, like that guy, but, but they will not last. So if you want to get on the truth train that's going to endure and last, throughout all of eternity, God's word, that's the, that's the train you want to be on, okay? We are bombarded with messages from all over the place all the time, right? We are, we are bombarded with messages all the time. You people, all of us, we are being pushed to the margins. If you follow Jesus, you are currently being pushed to the margins of our society. And so maybe this is how it plays out this year. You're going to sit in a classroom at Oregon State University and you might have a professor that is going to try to be pushing on you something, pressuring you in some sort of way to buy into something that might seem really smart, okay? And definitely more in line with the current state and values of our culture. And you're going to feel this sort of stress and pressure to buy into that thing. But I'm just telling you, if that truth they're pressing on you isn't God's truth, it won't endure. That's what this means, 
it will one day prove to be a trend and not a truth. It will be a trend and not a truth. And, and we need to decipher between those two things. It's sort of like when uh, someone gets on a cultural trend super early on, you know, like depending on what it is, you might look at them, maybe it's like fashion or something, and you're just like, wow, like we're really wearing that now? I remember like, I don't know, like a year or two ago, like fanny packs were coming back in. And growing up in the 90s, I was like, sweet. I don't even know if that stuck. It might have tried to take off and didn't. Koski, you would know, man. But seriously, fanny packs, right? Like I was looking at people being like, oh, that's, that's in now, right? I didn't know they were starting a comeback. Or I can remember when smartphones were coming out and I would ask people because I had the flip phone. And I was like, what's so cool about that? They're like, you can check your email whenever you want. I'm like, that sounds terrible. Like I don't want to be able to have to do that all the time. Right? Or hammer pants were making a comeback or something. Okay? Whatever. Like, things happen. Someone starts it. You always look at that person and you're like, oh, really? That's it, huh? That's, that's, the, that's the new trend? Or you, you're hoping that's going to be the new trend? Okay? I'm never an early adopter, as you could probably tell. Okay? But what I'm saying is this. If you submit yourself to the word of God and trust that it endures and it is the narrative that spans into every culture, every generation, that it will last throughout eternity right, and it outlasts every modern-day idea and trend that is contrary to the will and ways of God, if you put your trust in it, you will stand out. You will get rejected. You will get pushed to the margins of society. But you can honestly think of yourself as a trendsetter. You're ahead of the curve. God's word, remember, it's the freeze, right? Wins every time. It'll cross the finish line. Fearing people or this world or a cultural persecution that pushes you to the margins, guys, it's grass. It's grass. Secondly, we, we should not put our hope in Christian trends. What I mean by that is we should never put our hope in something that pops up as sort of the new wave or the silver bullet of Christianity. As if things aren't working, we're like, you know what? We really need a new graphics guy, right? By the way, Armentano and Wiedenbacher, you do great, okay? But it's, we don't put our hope in graphics or having people dress a certain way or certain music styles, certain programs. I'm not saying that stuff can't be important, but that is not a silver, there's no silver bullet, right? This means as a community of faith, we do not put our hopes on a, in aesthetics or programs. We put it in the unchanging word of God. We are word-centered people, always have been. That's who we are as a community of faith. It's, it's like those trends in fashion or technology. The moment you see a new one pop up, you might feel the urge to be like, that's it, that's what we're missing, that's what we need. No, that's wrong. We need God to speak. That's what we need. Because when God speaks, things happen. When you see God speak in the Bible, things change. How did he create things? He spoke words, things, Flourishing, awesome stuff. Jesus gets up in a boat, speaks to creation, it stops. God speaks, things happen, right? So we remain a word-centered people trusting in the scriptures to move us and shape us. Thirdly, thirdly, we have a comfort through the transitions in life. We have a comfort through the transitions of life. I'm not gonna lie, last night was was pretty brutal for our family from about 7.30 to 8.30 p.m., okay? 
Uh, we are uh, in a season of family life where we're trying to purge ourselves of all these like material possessions. And uh, we're trying to just like assess things that we own and be like, do we really use that? Let's, let's get rid of it. Or we, have, we use that, but we have way too much of it. Let's downsize a little bit. And just we're trying to get fewer possessions in our lives to take up space sort of thing, okay? Last night, I realized that over the last eight years of having our kids, okay, we have accumulated a lot of stuffed animals. Uh, we piled them up, counted them 75 to be exact. I have a picture my wife took last night, okay? Uh, those are three of my kids. Luckily, Isla's only five months, so she doesn't own any stuffed animals yet, or else that'd probably be a lot higher, okay? So last night, we sat down our kids, and we said, hey, guys, we need to, we need to bring this down, this number down to about 30, okay? So I could tell this was not going to go over that well right away. I said, all right, you pick four that you don't want to keep. We're going to give these away to other kids, okay? And uh, so they picked four good choices. I said, all right, my turn. I'm going to go through, get rid of all the really dumb ones that I don't like. Okay, they had like a rat and like spider and like stupid. I'm like, we're not going to have this in our house, okay? A lemur that looked like a possum, which I had possum problems before. It's always creeped me out, okay? So I put all these ones in the getaway pile, okay? And then we said, all right, you can go through and you can pick out your 10 favorites and keep them. Tucker goes first, right? He gets nine, and then he sits there with five remaining animals, and he's like just toiling over like what in the world he should pick as his final one to the point where I said, hey, buddy, you can go sit in the side, keep thinking about it, all right? We're gonna go to the next person, Eden, your turn. I look around, I can't find Eden. I go walking around the house, I found her in the other room, bawling her eyes out, man. Just bawling her eyes out, so many tears. Our daughter had that like rash breakout on her face from crying so much, you know? And then Tucker, like this is how he processed his grief. He like drew a picture of all the animals he said goodbye to and tears streaming down his animals' faces. And then he has his picture of himself that he drew, tears streaming down his face. And I'm sitting there like, oh my gosh. And I look at Gus, our three-year-old, and he's just like chilling out, like grinning the whole way through this thing. Like, I don't know if this kid has any other emotions besides smiling. Uh, he was fine with it. But man, geez, guys, it was really hard on these kids to let go of these stuffed animals, to say goodbye to possessions that they love. This whole thing we're trying to do as a family, you could say that's a good thing or a bad thing, that's not the point, right? This is, this is a hard transition for them, right? And I can't imagine what it would be like if I told them, hey, we're getting rid of all of them. Say goodbye to every single one of your animals, right? I'd probably have like child protective services at my door or something later on. And really, the only consolation I had in this moment when they're, when they're bawling their eyes out and they're really sad and stuff like that is I said, after this is all over, we're going to have an M&M feast, okay? And that kind of helped a little bit. But more importantly, we bumped up the score. We said, all right, you could take 12. You can keep 12, right? It was those two things that got them through that moment, no matter how silly you think it might be, right? transitions, changes, goodbyes, those are hard. They're always hard. Places come and go. Jobs come and go. People come and go. Seasons of life come and go. As a church, we're going through the biggest transition we've ever gone through. I mean, we're essentially, in a way, replanting a church. Same vision, same values, same distinctives, right? But different rhythms, different location, different leadership. I mean, transitions and changes, they're, they're really hard, but they are hard 
only when we have loved well and when we've enjoyed the season we've been in. Transitions are always welcome in our lives when we didn't like the season we were in. We're like, yes, thank you, transition. Glad you're here. The only thing we do during transitions, the only thing we, we do do during transitions is that we cling to something to get us through. And that could be something as simple as something that's familiar to you, whether that's a TV show you'd return to, or a food in your life, or music that's nostalgic for you. I'm not sure what it might be for you or if you function like me, but we look to something to get us through. And here, guys, we have a promise, a sure promise, that no matter what you face in life, no matter how difficult the transition, no matter the change of scenery or the change in the familiar, God's word will always be there. It is a sure, wise, stable foundation. It never goes away. It's like a river that cuts through a ravine. And everything it touches along the way, it, it produces vegetation and beauty and life wherever it touches. God's word endures, and it is what we cling to in every transition. Every transition. It's better than keeping 12 animals or having an M&M feast. I'm gonna put this on the screen. It's the last thing I'm gonna leave you with. It's a quote I thought was helpful. It's by a guy named Kevin DeYoung. He said this, in a world that prizes the new, the progressive, and the evolved, we need to be reminded that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And since he remains the same, so does his truth. Which means sometimes consistency is the better part of valor. That last sentence is awesome. I pray that God would give us perspective tonight, that, he, that we would cling to this promise, that we would practice this way of Jesus, this way of trusting in the unchanging word of God to get us through every day, every moment, every season, every transition.